Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Uh, so we have a guest preacher today, a gentleman, Connor Haas. Um, I tried to get some uh, interesting nuance out of him about uh, where he's at in life. Uh, he's currently in his final year at uh, university to become a preacher, uh, uh, regularly attends over at Grace Community of Orange, and uh, he wouldn't give me anything, but uh, we have been consistently calling his lovely girlfriend his wife, so perhaps the uh, unique thing is that because we give double honor to those who are called to preach, that we have upgraded his poor girlfriend, who I'm sure is ashamed of the fact that we keep saying over and over again, it's his wife, it is in fact his wonderful girlfriend. But thank you, Connor, for being here. Uh, we look forward to uh, your uh, message, and if we could, for those of us who are sitting under his preaching, uh, we look forward to him uh, opening up the word with us and sharing about, uh, to us from Isaiah 40. Very good. All right, well, thanks so much for letting me be with you this morning. This is coming through, right? You can hear me? Great, okay. Uh, well, Landon is exactly right. Uh, Emily is not my wife, uh, hopefully someday, but girlfriend now. Uh, and he was pestering me for information about myself, and I said, you know, honestly, I'm not that interesting, so I don't really know what you want from me, uh, but that's the lay of the land. Uh, you can open up your Bible to Isaiah chapter 40, and today we are just going to be looking at verses 1 through 5. Rob uh, mentioned to me that you guys are in a series in Deuteronomy right now. And then going to be starting a series in Luke. That's took a break from Luke. Okay, and are returning to Luke. So he said, "Stay away from those books. <laughs> Don't meddle with those, and uh, you can go anywhere else." So we're in Isaiah 40, and this actually has touch points with both of those books, but uh, is neither of those. So I think we're in safe territory. And I will read verses one through five. Then I'll pray if that's okay, and then we'll dive into this. So Isaiah chapter 40, verses one through five. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand a double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And Lord, we come to you today thankful for your word, thankful that we have an opportunity to sit under it, and Lord, we just ask that this morning by your Holy Spirit, you would encourage our hearts with this word of comfort, comfort to your people. Lord, we know that life is difficult and hard and painful at times, and so we ask that we would take comfort from these truths that are here before us, Lord, so that we would love you, that we would be grateful for your Son, so that we would persevere through trials, looking forward to the hope that's ours in him. We pray all this in his name. Amen. So I want to begin today by asking you to imagine a world that's really different from the one that we actually live in. Um, a few weeks ago, we remembered what happened uh, 19 years ago on September 11th, 2001, that terrible event that, that changed everything in our nation, two hijacked planes crashing into the Twin Towers in New York. I want you to imagine this world, though. What if, just play this out, what if 9-11 had not actually ended on 
But the next day, hijacked planes crashed into buildings in other major cities in America, Los Angeles and Dallas and Seattle and Chicago. All across the nation, cities were being hit with planes and, and even bombs. And, and, and then, in a coordinated attack by all of our enemies, there were suddenly armed troops in the streets. Key leaders in our nation were either uh, assassinated or kidnapped. And all of a sudden, America found itself at the mercy of foreign conquerors. And there were people with guns patrolling in our neighborhoods. And then slowly, house by house, neighborhood by neighborhood, people were actually taken, put on boats and planes, and shipped off to somewhere in the Middle East. And then one day, a knock came on your door. And it was your turn. And you were the one being loaded up, carted off to wherever this place was that we were being taken. And all of a sudden, America found itself exiled in a foreign land. And we were all there. And you say, well, that sounds super improbable. Of course, that wouldn't happen. And yeah, maybe not. But that is exactly the situation that Israel was anticipating when, when these verses came onto the scene. They were looking down the barrel of the gun of exile. And in fact, if you, if you just scan up in your Bible from those verses to chapter 39 of Isaiah, I just want to give us a little context as we head into things this morning, because we need to understand that Israel was heading towards a terrible exile. Read from uh, verse 1 with me. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. Hezekiah, king of, uh, king of Jerusalem at the time. And Hezekiah, uh, for he heard that he had been sick and recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in all his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouse that I did not show him. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So that is the scene. You're following that, right? Hezekiah, king of Israel, he's, he's done pretty well against the Assyrian threat, which kind of is the backdrop for the first 37 chapters of Isaiah. But then at 38, the scene changes, and now Babylon looms large on the scene. And Hezekiah, in a moment of pride... Rather than saying, I'm going to trust the Lord, trusts in himself, and proudfully, or pridefully shows off all of his collection to the Babylonian envoy. And the Lord responds, guess what? You're going into exile in Babylon. And as Israel looks at this, they start to, I would imagine, just have questions like, what's going to happen with respect to all the promises that we've been given? What about the promise from Genesis 3.15 that there's going to come this one man who's going to crush the head of Satan and, and, and uh, turn away the curse? What about the promises given to Abraham that through our nation, Israel, blessing's going to come to the whole world? What's going to happen now? 
What about the promises concerning the land, that we're going to dwell in this land, and through this land, the knowledge of God will spread across the globe? What about the promise that David, our kind of our first great king, would someday have a descendant who's going to rule forever and have an eternal kingdom? What's going on with these promises? Are they going to, are they going to last, or have we sinned so much that we've defaulted on all of those promises? We're going to be kicked out of the land. Are we, are we even going to be restored? Are any of these things going to come to pass? These are the questions that are circling through Israel's mind. And even though we're not in exile today, physically, there is a sense in which we, we do parallel Israel's experience in exile. Because the New Testament writers come along and they say, guess what, believers in the New Testament era, you too are exiles spiritually. And 1 Peter especially uh, hits on that note. He starts his letter by saying, to you who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And then multiple times in that letter, refers to the believers as exiles who are exiled from their heavenly home. That's us. And practically that looks like, like trouble in this life, both in the specific uh, suffering that comes from being a believer and in the general suffering that comes from the curse while we wait to be reunited with our king where our true citizenship is in heaven. Maybe this morning in that state of exile, you're experiencing, well, truly experiencing grief, grief over a lost loved one. It sounds like, is Mary, Mary her name? It sounds like Mary has just passed away to be with the Lord. And we feel that grief. We say, Lord, this hurts. Maybe you're experiencing the, the breaking or straining of a relationship in your life. And you're saying, when am I going to get to the place that I'm longing to be? When is exile going to be over? Maybe there's health concerns that keep you from doing what you'd like to do. Maybe there's persecution or disdain from unbelievers. Maybe there's frustration because you're not as close to the Lord as you want to be. Or maybe there's disappointment because you keep struggling with and fighting against and not seeing progress with respect to the same sin in your life. And you're just wondering, Lord, when is this going to end? When is, when is this going to be done? And when am I going to be with you? So both us and Israel are in need in this situation of a word of comfort. A word of comfort that will steady their soul in the face of this this daunting and difficult wasteland of exile. And that's exactly what Isaiah gives to them. In this, this hinge point of the book where they're transitioning from the first section to a whole new section which will speak about the hope of what God will do in the future, there is a word of comfort that comes to them. And it's this amazing soul-steadying word that we need this morning. In it, Isaiah is going to show us that the Lord is not done with his people and there is abundant comfort for the helpful and the hurting. And it's going to come to us in the form of two messages. And the messages are these. There is a message of God's abundant pardon for sin and then there's a message of God's glorious coming. It's that simple. There's abundant pardon for sin and there is a glorious coming in which God will actually be with his people again. And these kind of twin strands are the two places that both Israel then and we today look for hope. There's forgiveness for my sins and God will return to dwell in glory with us. In the midst of pain and difficulty, feeling distant from the Lord, we, we hold on to these things and they steady our souls in the midst of a difficult life. So, That's our roadmap for this morning. And with that, let's dive into these verses and see what's going on here. Look with me at verse 1. The message begins like this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And it's so contrary to what we would expect. Because the fact of the matter is, if you've read the book of Isaiah, is Israel doing good or bad during this time? 
Maybe just take a general guess. Is Israel usually doing good or bad? Bad. <laughs> They're usually not doing very well. And in Isaiah, it's exactly the same. We could trace this through the whole book, but even just in chapter 1, we hear things like this in the book of Isaiah. Israel are like children who the Lord has reared up, and then they've rebelled against him. Israel is a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. Israel's whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint. Israel lies desolate. Her cities are burned with fire. Listen to this one. Israel is compared to and likened to rulers of Sodom and people of Gomorrah. Is that typically something that you want to describe you? Do you want to be a person from Sodom or Gomorrah? Didn't end well for them, but that's how Israel is described. Israel is described as a faithless city who's become a prostitute, giving herself away to other lovers, being unfaithful to Yahweh. It's said of Israel that her silver has become dross and her best wine mixed with water. When your silver is dross, what does that mean? It means that the best part of you has become like the thing that you don't want in your metal anymore. There's nothing good anymore. You know that. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm not familiar with metalworking, but the idea is if you have metal that's got some good metal in it, but then, you know, is partly impure, you would melt that metal and the dross would start to go away and you're left with the pure substance. But in Israel... The silver had become dross. It was all bad. There's nothing good that would recommend Israel to God anymore. They're, they're, they're doing really bad as a nation. And the first 39 chapters chronicle this, this rebellious nation who have totally turned tail from all of their responsibilities as God's covenant people. They've been unfaithful to him. They've gone after other lovers. And finally, with the expectation of exile looming, this word comes in, flying from almost out of nowhere. Comfort, comfort my people. That's exactly the opposite of what we would have expected. We would have thought judgment is coming on you as a result of what you've done. But no, the word from Isaiah is comfort. And notice how, how caring it is and how emphatic it is. Comfort, not just once, but twice. Comfort them, comfort them. Tell them how much I care about them. Comfort my people, says your God. It's the language of relationship. There's different times in this book when they're referred to as this people. And there's the distance there that you can feel. This people have rebelled against me. But here it's comfort my people. I still care about them. I haven't forsaken them. This is the way that God wants to come to Israel in comfort and so it, it is a message of comfort, but we're left wondering still, well, where does this comfort come from? How are things going to get better? How is it going to shape up? And now we turn to these two messages, a message of abundant pardon and a message of a glorious coming. And we want to just unpack these this morning. My prayer has been that all of our hearts would be encouraged by these hopes, that God forgives sinners and he will one day dwell again with them. And that's exactly what Isaiah gives us here. So look with me at verse 2, and we're going to start to unpack this first message, the message of God's abundant pardon. Verse 2, again, the language is so caring. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Cry to her what? Here it comes. It is a message of pardon that comes in three stages. First, that her warfare is ended. That the warfare of Israel is ended. That word warfare can, can be translated as warfare, or it can be something like forced service, something that you're subjected to. And the word for ended actually has the idea of to be filled up, to be brought to completion. Um, the idea is that a day will come when all of the 
trouble prescribed for Israel will be filled up and it will be no more. Has anybody, uh, has anybody ever been to a restaurant called The Hat? Does that sound familiar to anybody? Yeah? Yes? Really, really delicious. And I, I don't know where the closest one is here, but what's The Hat famous for? Pastrami, these like amazing pastrami sandwiches, and they're really big. And then they also have these great fries. So all that to say, last night I went to the hat. I was in Lake Forest, went to the hat, ordered a pastrami dip, I think it's called, pastrami dip and a bag of fries. I got large. I was like, yeah, large bag of fries. My food comes, and the pastrami sandwich alone is like enough to kill an elephant. It's massive. It's so big. And then the, the large fry is actually just a bunch of fries dumped into one of their big bags. It's massive. And by the time I was finished with this, it is very safe to say that I was filled up and could not take any more. That is not the kind of meal where you're left, you know, oh, I think I could go for seconds right now. It's just, no, it's filled up. It's done. And that's silly, but what God is saying to Israel is that, Israel, there is a certain there is a certain meter that will be reached someday of your suffering. And once it is full, there will be no more. There is a time when it will all be over. And today, if we're, if we're in that place of feeling like, wow, Lord, I'm, I'm so tired of fighting in this life against the sins that are inside of me, the difficulties that are outside, a day is coming when it will be over. There's only so much that the Lord has prescribed. And then it will all be done. He says to Israel, guess what, Israel? You're suffering now, yes, but the day will come when it will all end. Your sufferings will be filled up, and beyond that, nothing but hope and union with me forever. So there's hope in that. And the way that this comes about is now explained, because obviously Israel's sinful. How can their suffering come to end? They deserve to suffer. But the second point of this message, this threefold message, is that, look at with me at the middle of verse 2 there, her warfare has ended, and point 2 her iniquity is pardoned. Her iniquity is pardoned. And this is really straightforward. Her sins are forgiven, right? Praise the Lord. Amen. But let's look a little bit closer. What does this mean? Uh, this word for pardon is used a handful of times in the Bible. And a lot of times it's used in the active sense of actually trying to pay back a debt. So rather than saying, you know, that they are pardoned, they, it would say that they are trying to make amends for what they've done wrong. But obvious question here. Is Israel ever going to be able to fully make amends for all the sin they've committed against God? There's no way. No hope for that. Similarly, could we ever make amends for all of the wrong that we've done against God? Obviously, the answer is no. We've sinned far too greatly against him. He's far too holy to take the kind of poor amends that we could make. But what God says here is that their iniquity has been pardoned for them. It's been done for them on their behalf. And this is exactly... The, the theme that runs from the very beginning to the very end concerning the Bible's teaching on salvation, that it is the Lord's work, nobody else's, we're not involved, he does this. When I was, when I was little, my dad used to sometimes set me on his lap when he was driving, and I would put my hands on the wheel and then he would, you know, drive around, and I thought, like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm driving. And then I'd run in, you know, to my house afterwards and be like, Mom, Mom, I drove the car. But the fact of the matter is, who is actually driving the car? It's all my, it's all my dad, right? I, I wasn't driving the car. Sometimes we get ourselves mixed up and we think that we've had anything to do with this glorious salvation that God has worked in us. And if we start to let ourselves bleed into the picture, maybe we start to think, well, I could be the one then that might mess it up and it could all come crumbling down. But if it's all the Lord's, if he's the one who pardons sinners, there's no chance that it could go awry because he's the one who's guiding it from beginning to end. 
So there's this message of pardon that first has included uh, an end to their suffering. Second, there's the pardoning of sin. But third, and listen to this, it's, so, it's just so glorious. There is a, mess, a, a message of not just pardon for sin, but abundant pardon, generous pardon, lavish pardon. Look at this, uh, this third point here. Their warfare has ended, point one, that her iniquities pardon, point two, but then point three, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Israel has received from God's hand double for all her sins. Now we ask the question, well, what does this mean? Because if we look at it at first, it almost could seem to us as though it's saying Israel has actually gotten a double punishment for all her sins, and now there's going to be no more punishment coming. But if we think about this more, we realize that's actually not the case at all. Because was Israel actually punished even to the extent that she deserved for her sins? No. In fact, when you get to the post-exilic community, when you're in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah and Israel's back in the land, you get a verse like this. Ezra, chapter 9, verse 13. Ezra's praying to God and he says, And after all that's come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, O God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this. And he goes on from there. But do you see what Ezra says? He says, Lord, you've punished us in all of this exile. You've punished us less than our sins deserved. You've punished us less, Lord. And so this verse can't mean that God has like, meted out to Israel double punishment. It must mean something else. And what it actually means when we dive down into it is essentially this. God has given Israel double pardon. God has given them abundant pardon, gracious pardon. He's gone over the top to clear their name. And this is really encouraging to us because I think sometimes we get this idea in our head that God is hesitant to extend pardon to us, and he only does it grudgingly. It's almost like he's, he's penny-pinching to get us the least possible cost to himself. But what Isaiah is saying here is, no, that's not the case at all. God has gone to every length. He has gone to abundant lengths to secure your pardon. Maybe you are the kind of person who likes to shop around for used goods on Craigslist or offer up. Our pastor, actually, at Grace Orange, Pastor Mike Shera, he is like the pro of the bargain find. Is that not true? Uh, that was a look at Emily. That is true. He, yeah, yeah, that is true. She can attest. He is like estate sales and offer up any kind of way to get like the best deal. And when he finally finds a good deal, he'll show some of the guys in the office and I say, look, I just found this great deal on a new bag, you know, and he's going to offer it for, you know, 50 bucks, but I think I could get him down to 45. He's always looking for that angle. And sometimes we're tempted to think of God in that way. He, well, yes, he forgives, but only, only grudgingly. He, he's not willing to, to give all, but that's exactly the opposite of the Lord's mercy towards us. He's not like that. He's not trying to, to save every dollar that he could. It's abundant pardon. There's a book that came out this year. It's called Gentle and Lowly. And it's about Jesus' heart for sinners. And, and the whole book is just this incredible explanation, demonstration, kind of exploding of this idea that Jesus loves to save sinners. He loves to show mercy to wicked people like us. And one of the quotes that I love from this book says this. The author writes, The high and holy Christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners. 
Such embrace is precisely what he loves to do. He cannot bear to hold back. We naturally think of Jesus touching us the way a little boy reaches out to touch a slug for the first time. You can imagine that picture, right? Face screwed up, cautiously extending an arm, giving a yelp of disgust upon contact and instantly withdrawing. This is why we need a Bible. Only, or our natural intuition can only give us a God like us. When we paint God in our own image, we would think of him as we would be to that disgusting, vile creature just barely wanting to touch out. But the Bible says, no, it's exactly the opposite. He loves to save sinners and he gives abundant pardon. This is the comfort that Isaiah brings to Israel. But now out of all this, we have to ask another question. That's how does this comfort come? And Isaiah provides the answer not too far away. You don't have to turn there, but if you'd like to, Isaiah 53, a chapter that's familiar to us, explains in detail, how does abundant pardon come? How can it come to sinners? We, we start to hear about this figure, the servant, who pops up starting in chapter 40 and extending through chapter 55. In Isaiah 53, 4-6, we read these words of that servant. We read, surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How can God extend abundant pardon to sinners? It's through the giving of his own son, the servant who would come to take the iniquity of Israel and the whole world upon his shoulders on the cross. And he would bear it for us in full, paid, done, so that now God can look towards sinners like us and say, I have a message for you of abundant pardon. And just to get practical for a moment, wherever you've been this week, and whatever you've done, whatever in your life you, is, is sitting in the back of your mind right now even, and is just crying out to you, unworthy, unworthy. I've done what I shouldn't have done. I've said what I shouldn't have said. Thought what I shouldn't have thought. The Lord does not come like that little boy touching a slug to you. His mercy is, is available and free. And he comes and he wants to embrace sinners like us who are totally unworthy of that treatment. Not because of anything in us, but because of his son who's paid for sins. Paid for sinners in full. It's done. It's over. And now God's word to us is just abundant mercy and pardon. One more quote from that book that I, just, I, I really like. This author, again, just wrote, Not once are we told in the Bible that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy. His anger requires provocation, but his mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded. Divine mercy is slow to build, but it's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. And so this morning, if you're under conviction or guilt or sadness over sin in your life, God extends the hand of comfort to you and says, cast your cares upon me. I care for the weak and the lowly. And there is abundant comfort. There is abundant pardon in Christ. So that's the first point of comfort. And it is the kind of glorious, soul-steadying comfort that we need to get us through the challenges and difficulties of this life. But 
it doesn't end there because from there, there's a great turn. And now a second message of comfort comes. A second voice cries, starting in verse 3 and going down through verse 5. And this is the comfort that God is coming to be with us. And this is going to be glorious. We will see him as he is. There is the comfort of forgiveness for sins, full pardon. But then, And that's what's for us at least, happened past tense. Jesus has died. He has been raised. He has secured the salvation of his people. But it doesn't end there. In real time, in 2020, what's the date today? The 20th of September. We are looking forward to a day of future, full, final salvation when we will be with the king. And there's comfort in that. So let's see what Isaiah has to say about it. Verse 3, a voice cries. We don't even know who's crying, but there's just this voice off screen. It's almost like you're watching a movie, and all of a sudden, you know, just not even on the camera, you just hear this, a cry from out of nowhere. And what is that cry containing? Another message of comfort. Look at this. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Okay, what's going on here? What's going on here is Isaiah is drawing upon an ancient Near Eastern theology or even a, a political ideology that would say when a king or even a god, but we could say when a king or a human ruler was coming to visit your city, you would prepare the way for that ruler by building a really nice road up to your city to kind of get the place ready for them. And this, this is exactly what we do now. If you're having somebody over to your house, is that usually the day that you decide to take all of your stuff in your closet and just throw it out on your living room floor? <laughs> yes? No, probably not, right? Uh, it's usually the day that that happens. That's when your kids decide, like, this would be a great day to spill ketchup all over our carpet or, or whatever that is. But what we try to do, at least, is, you know, I'm going to get the place fixed up a little bit. I want to prepare the way, you know, for whoever, whoever's coming over. And it was, the same, it was the same for kings back then. So Isaiah is drawing on that theology and saying, okay, you recognize that when the way is being prepared, it means a king is coming. Let me tell you about the way that will be prepared for the true king when he comes. And listen to this argument from the lesser to the greater of how glorious a way is going to be prepared for Yahweh when he comes. Verse 4 says this, Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain hill be made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. I don't know if you've ever done like work just like digging out in the dirt, but if you have, can we all agree that that's pretty backbreaking work? It's tiring to just move a lot of dirt. That's why they have machines for that now, you know, big, big things that claw the dirt, and they you know, build it into piles and all that kind of thing. Isaiah says every valley, every valley will be brought low, or will be raised up. Every mountain and hill will be made low when this king comes. That's a lot of dirt to move. Because I'm a nerd and was just thinking about this a little bit more, I was thinking about what if, what if a, a person decided they want to try to clear a road from Sinai to Jerusalem? A lot of people would see this text as kind of hearkening back to previous texts that talk about the Lord coming from Sinai to be with his people in Jerusalem. And this is imperfect, but I think that if you wanted to clear that way and, and move the mountains and hills that need to move in order to make a straight, flat road for the Lord, you're talking about moving three million tons of earth. That's, that's a conservative estimate. 
That's a lot of dirt that's going to be moved. But Isaiah's point is this. You think that it's glorious when the greatest earthly king comes? It will be nothing. Nothing at all. Just a drop compared to the glory of the coming of Yahweh. Because that is the one who's coming in verse 5. And the glory of the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh. And the glory of Yahweh will be revealed. And all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Israel's staring down the gun of Babylonian exile. They're just looking down the barrel waiting for this to happen. And Isaiah comes to them with a message of comfort. And what is the content of this message? It's forgiveness, yes, but then it's also beyond that, broader than that. And it's something that the rest of his book, from chapter 40 all the way through chapter 66, is going to just blow up and explode and expand. It's this idea that Yahweh will come to rule among his people. And all flesh, not just Israel, but all flesh will see the glory of this king when he comes. That's the hope that's going to steady Israel through exile in Babylon. That's the hope that steadies us as exiles who are waiting for our heavenly home. And so I want to now ask a question. And it's a little bit of a, maybe a kind of a technical question, but I think it's going to help us to think through things here. The question that I want to ask is, what event is Isaiah anticipating here? Because when we look at verse 3, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Is that ringing any bells for anybody? Do we see that somewhere else in scripture? Where, Where do we see that language? A voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight his paths. Isn't that, isn't that John the Baptist? What's that? Careful, that, uh, yeah, <laughs> see? You know what, I was looking at it, and I was thinking, oh, I better, Rob's going to be, you know, he's, that's uh, careful ground to tread on. Well, it is in Luke, and it is in Mark, and it is in Matthew, and it is in John. There are actually, I mean, there are many events which are shared by all four gospel writers, but a lot of times, even some of the significant things that happen in the gospels, maybe just one, two, three of the gospel writers have them, for all four of them to make a big deal about this and say, this is fulfilled. This prophecy from Isaiah is fulfilled in the person of John the Baptist. He is the voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. That's significant. Something's going on here. So we still ask the question, though. Has what Isaiah is talking about here been fulfilled? Because verse 5 says... And the glory of Yahweh will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. So here's the question. Has that happened yet? Was Isaiah talking about a kind of spiritual revealing of God's glory that happened when Jesus came in the incarnation and John prepared the way? Or is Isaiah looking forward to something beyond that? Has this prophecy been fulfilled yet? And I think with respect, I think to answer that question, We want to recognize this. There is a sense in which, yes, what's going on here has been fulfilled. But secondarily, there's actually a piece of this prophecy. And I would say it's verse 5 that hasn't been fulfilled yet. And we're still waiting for it to be realized. And here we're getting into a really interesting dynamic of the first and second coming of Jesus. And oftentimes, when you have Old Testament passages, the first and second coming are just tied together very closely. But then the New Testament comes and it says, actually, guess what? There are two comings, and in the first coming, Jesus will come low, and he'll secure the salvation of everybody who would trust in him. But there's another coming, 
And it's this second coming, which will happen later, when the Lord will return and actually fulfill so many of these Old Testament prophecies that still await fulfillment. In the New Testament, a lot of times actually, when the gospel writers especially will quote passages about Jesus in the Old Testament, oftentimes they'll quote a passage, but not the whole passage. And the portion of the passage that they'll quote is a reference to the low first coming of Jesus, But what they'll leave out, the verse that might follow in the Old Testament passage, is a reference to his second glorious coming in which he will come to rule. Are you following me on that? Sorry, I know I'm getting lost in the weeds a little bit. But the point of all this is that we live in a really privileged time in which we actually get to look back on the first coming of Jesus. We know that he's the Messiah because of what he's done, because of his death and resurrection. His signs bear witness to the fact that he is the one that we are waiting for. And yet, we also look forward and wait for the final fulfillment of all these passages that we read about in Scripture. And this is one of them. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. And if we were to look forward through Isaiah... We could see many places where Isaiah begins to anticipate this exact dynamic. Because first, he speaks of a suffering servant in this chapter and the next 15 chapters. A suffering servant who we just read about, who will come to die for his people, who will come low. But then starting in chapter 56, Isaiah begins to speak of that very same servant, the Messiah, as an anointed conqueror who will come to rule the world and establish a good and just kingdom forever and ever and ever. And we don't, want to, we don't want to lose out on the hope that would come to us by focusing only on the first coming and failing to think about the fact that someday he's going to come back to make it all right and he'll rule as king. This is what the prophets anticipate. Listen to just a few of these passages in Isaiah. They're so glorious. Isaiah 61 Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations will come to your light, and kings the brightness of your rising. Israel is anticipating a day when they'll actually, as a nation, be regathered into the land, and God will rule among them. Isaiah 60, 19 and 20. This is actually the verse that corresponds to the verse that Randy read for us this morning. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. The sun will no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. Where does Israel get comfort when they're looking ahead to Babylonian exile? And where do we get comfort when we live in this world? We get comfort when we look to the future and see a day when Jesus Christ will rule as the king of the universe forever and ever. This year has been like the year to end all years, has it not? Coronavirus is crazy. The whole world is melting down, thinking through quarantine. How serious is it? Should we be afraid? Should we not be afraid? How are economies going to survive? Etc. 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 Nationally, our nation is in chaos. 
Race relations and the questions that pertain to those complicated issues are tearing us apart at the seams. Just days ago, two police officers murdered in Compton. And as their bodies were rushed to the hospital, people in the streets shouting, we hope they die, we hope they die. What are we to make of all of this? Where is the justice? Where is the peace? This world's falling apart on us. Where do we look for comfort in that moment? We don't, <laughs> we don't look to any temporary earthly remedy. We look to Jesus who will come to be king. And when we look to him, we think, I can have peace and comfort now because I know this is not how the story ends. Jesus is coming back. And the beautiful thing about the pardon that we heard about before, the abundant pardon, is not simply that Jesus forgives me of my sins and I go to heaven. If that's your view of Jesus, it's, it, he's too small. It's that Jesus brings me into this incredible, glorious, eternal storyline. And someday I'll see him. I'll see him. And that is our hope. I want to read just a few New Testament passages as we close and just, just put this hope in front of us this morning. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 to 18. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, listen to this phrase, doesn't this excite you? And so we will always be with the Lord. We'll always be with him. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. As a final example, I just want to turn again to read those verses that Randy read before from the book of Revelation. This is where it's going. This is how it ends. It ends well for people who repent from sin and trust Christ. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the uh, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither th shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away." If that's not abundant comfort, I don't know what is. And if you this morning are still resisting the call of the Lord to, to repent from sin and trust Christ, don't resist any longer. He is the king who will reign forever, and he is the servant who came to die for sinners. And in him there is eternal comfort and hope. Let's pray together. Father, what a... A great thing to be reminded of the comfort that we have in Christ. Lord, we thank you that he is the one who, who brings abundant pardon, and we thank you that he is the one who will rule forever in glory. And Lord, even today, we just ask, come, Lord Jesus. We long for you to come back to make all things right, to rule as a good and just and kind and gracious king. 
And Lord, in the meantime, we just ask that in light of these glorious realities, these truths, the expectation of what's coming, you would help us to live lives uh, comforted, trusting you, and pursuing a life honoring to you as we wait for your return. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.